Trevor, and on behalf of myself, Lauren and Leah, welcome home to your Boo Crew. A time of release, if you're going to be in the L.A. area this weekend, December 2nd through 4th, we're going to be hanging out at Season Screamings. It's a holiday horror convention at the Pasadena Convention Center. It's got vendors, special guests, and more. We're going to be hosting a very cool panel on Sunday with writer-director Mike Flanagan, actors Kate Siegel, Alex Esso, Henry Thomas, and Annabeth Gish for the Flaniverse reunion. It's going to be a great time. We're going to be talking about everything from Midnight Mass to the brilliant haunting of Hill House, Doctor Sleep, Midnight Club, and a little bit of what's to come with future projects like Fall of the House of Usher. Come on by, ask some questions, say hey. Tickets available at MidsummerScream.org. On to episode 364 in a conversation with renegade filmmaker and indie cinema icon, Jeff Lieberman. We explore the myth, mystery, and fun behind his incredible 2004 fright flick, one of our faves, Satan's Little Helper. On the heels of its exclusive and beautiful-looking Screambox release and a brand-new Blu-ray packed with special features, go behind the mask with us on this cult classic. Relive insane key shots, the many unforgettable improvised moments, set pieces. Find out who's underneath all that latex and how it all came together. We also revisit Jeff's 1976 masterpiece, Squirm, and working with FX genius Rick Baker. Projects with Rod Serling and his extraordinary new book, Day of the Living Me, Adventures of a Subversive Cult Filmmaker from the Golden Age, available everywhere now. All right, episode 364 with Jeff Lieberman and Satan's Little Helper is now slaying. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. All right, here we go. Joining Bloody Disgusting's Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studios, a phenomenal filmmaker whose work is so singular and inventive that every one of his projects becomes a classic. From attending the School of Visual Arts in New York City, he went on to co-write his first feature alongside the Oscar-winning Ernest Pintoff with Blade in 1973. Then he wrote and directed what became one of the genre films that defined an era with the beloved creature feature Squirm in 76 and Blue Sunshine that inspired legions of fans such as Joe Dante, The Cure's Robert Smith, and Steve Severn from Susie and the Banshees among the many. He followed it up with Dr. Franken and more absolute essential viewing, 81's Backwood Slasher just before dawn in 1988's absolutely awesome remote control with Kevin Dillon and Jennifer Tilly. Before dreaming up a delightful court TV show featuring the iconic John Waters, he crafted yet another incredible piece of work, and it is on the top of our Halloween must-watch list every year. It's become synonymous with the holiday itself. For many, it's called Satan's Little Helper. It is now streaming exclusively on Screenbox. It's now available on Synapse Films on Blu-ray, uncut for the first time ever with a bevy of special features that we cannot wait to tear into. The film follows a nine-year-old boy whose obsession with a bizarre and violent satanic video game comes to life one Halloween. What transpires is unsettling, hilarious, and 
terrifying as is always the wonderful journey one gets at the hands of the brilliant Emmy winning writer director Jeff Lieberman who we welcome to the show Jeff thank you so yeah. much for being here my man can you say all that again I, I, I missed that <laughs> I was like I feel like you know Sally Fields you know at the uh, Academy Awards <laughs> it is an honor man and thank you again so much for yeah. the time to, to take to speak with us and man on behalf of horror fans everywhere thank you for continuing to fuel our imaginations with your astonishing yes. creativity and unique voice my man it is appreciated so much i can't tell you I, I appreciate being appreciated and i didn't until what is that you're supposed to smell the roses i was a late smell i'm a late smeller i mean really i like do 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 and think and I'm not thinking of like, who's going to watch this, go on to the next thing, next thing. You get to a certain point, I guess, because I did. And I just said, people are getting your autograph and people are, you know, taken in. You could croak at any minute, you know, and it's like a, it's a good thing, but it makes it sound maudlin. But that's, you caught me at a good time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness for that. Because they say, you know, never meet yeah. your heroes. And man, you're, you're projecting amazingness yeah. right now. This is great. So yeah. where, where do you think that your sense of style came from? What were the, the horror films and genre films that raised you? Oh, uh, well, the most um, influential one, you know, was uh, The Incredible Shrinking Man. And the reason, half the reason was that I was 10. When you see a movie that has an impact on you and you're 10, it's, you know, I know that with Squirm. I, you know, when I see uh, Guillermo del Toro, Eli Roth, all these guys, and they come up to me that Squirm meant so much, then I go, how old were you? You know, and Blue Sunshine, Eli would say, you know, me and my brother, we sat on, we're not supposed to watch it. Our parents were watching on TV and we sat on the, on the uh, stairs. And I said, that's half of it. That it was so influential at the t- at the time you saw it. Now, but in my case, I'm not like I'm not comparing myself with Steven Spielberg, except he, you know, always hear about guys like him with eight millimeter film camera, and they were making movies when they were twelve. I had no interest in film, none, and I, I didn't even like to go to movies. I had a really good rational reason. That really shows my personality. When I started dating girls, to me, the stupidest thing to do was to take them to a movie. You pick them up. The father goes, no, he's going to be back at 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock. You got an 8 o'clock show. You're going to sit in a dark theater looking at the screen for two hours. And then you got like, oh, shit, you know, if there's traffic, I'm not going to get home. It's stupid. If it was a drive-in, whole other story. But most of the time, it wasn't a drive-in. So, you know, I had no interest in film at all. Hollywood, like, to me, Rock Hudson was Hollywood. And every, you know, that kind of Hollywood movies, no interest until I saw Blow Up. Really? That my world. So if it wasn't for Antonioni, uh, I'd be a doctor like my brother, probably. Wow. So that was a film that got you just down the path completely and, and made you just delve right into it all. Was that film? Yeah, because I never thought I thought of movies like Ben-Hur. You know, I never thought of it as an art film. No, nobody used the term cinema. That was like came later. Nobody. It was um, uh, I had to be exposed to it. And I went to 
School of Visual Arts, and I was exposed to it somewhat. But when I worked at Janus Films, we had all the Italian and French and Truffaut, and um, we had all the Bergman movies, the early Hitchcock movies. And I really got steeped in cinema, not film, cinema. And uh, I got into that kind of, so I saw it in a whole different way. Why I wound up doing Squirm is I took that cinema idea and I had a <laughs> traumatic experience when I was around 10. My brother, um, uh, you know, we used to go fishing and worms are expensive. So he read in uh, Popular Mechanics that you can get them out of the ground if you shock them and you use your train transformer, you take a pole, metal pole, and stick it into the mud. You, oh, you have to wet the ground down. We had a swimming pool, the kind of swimming pools that you take down in the, in the winter. So it leaves a big mud round circle. And it was, so it was perfect. We stuck that thing in, and then we had a light for the pool. So we did this in the dark. And then he says, you ready? And I had a little bucket to get the worms. And he zaps it with the Lionel train transformer. And then he says, turn the light on. I turn the light on and all these worms are coming out of the ground. Like hundreds, I don't know, in my mind, well, it was hundreds of them. And then uh, we had to go pick them up before, and then, and then uh, they hit the light and then went back in. Right? So now, seven years, uh, about nine years after that, when I, was, I took LSD, you take that experience Add LSD and you got squirm. It's that simple. <laughs> Boys and girls. <laughs> now, I want to say it, on squirm, is it true that it was like Rick Baker's first attempt at practical effects was with squirm, right? Not so well. He was um, Dick Smith's um, assistant, protege, whatever you want to call it. So it might have been his first full credit. I really don't know, but it was his first attempt at using prosthetics and i didn't know what what he was talking about until i saw it and i said we got one rick said you're going to pull these worms up with monofilament line through these channels in each the reason that prosthetics are, are so i mean they became the standard is you're wearing a mask it looks like a mask because you have no expression the face is is kind of um fixed but if you have prosthetics, you can move a cheek up and make it, you know, you look at the eyes. But they're so thin and flimsy, they're not designed to have rubber worms pulled through them with monofilament line. And he said, on the budget we had, he said, you get to do it. He couldn't test it. We didn't have the money to test it. And he made it from a mold from the actor we cast. And then uh, the testing of it was roll the cameras we had one shot at it and it it looked great yeah it looks fantastic that's amazing it looked great when we did it you didn't even have to see the dailies i remember saying if this doesn't get lost in the lab i mean we had people on the crew we had this one guy named mongo he was like 300 pounds big tall guy and uh somebody says where's mongo oh he's over he's in the swamp throwing up from that scene and i said how can he he saw exactly how we're doing it. 
And he still reacted that way. So I said, yeah, if this doesn't work, I don't know anything. Right? That's a, yeah, that's no better sign than that. Wow. I'm going to puke. That should have been the... Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So talk yeah. a bit about the kind of the gap in between... I guess, remote control and getting Satan's little helper off the ground. What were you working on in, in the middle of that period? And just kind of yeah, talk about so getting between, Satan's little helper off the ground. Yeah. Between uh, remote control and Satan's little helper. This is the funny thing about the biz is that I did more than the rest of my career times three and made 10 times the money that I made on the five movies. But like, for instance, um, I did a thing called um, But Seriously, a Showtime. It was a very high budget. Um, Rob Reiner was executive producer. It was totally mainstream. Castle Rock. Um, Richard Crystal was my partner. It was a, a history of, um, it was a political com a comedy thing. It was starting in 1960. You see what the news said and you see what the comics said at the time. And I went back and forth up till 93 when I made it and we had everybody in it and it got unbelievable reviews and they asked us to do another, but you don't know that. And I produced it and uh, directed it. Um, Sonny Liston for HBO won three. I directed it and it was um, won uh, three Emmy awards. But if you're in the world of, it's like I'm in a coma. Somebody actually said I was dead during that time. Are you kidding like, me? Oh, my God. He died. of. Well, you know how you could believe everything on the Internet. So it said the guy said, oh, yeah, yeah. He died of like specific cancer. So I'm thinking, well, not a brain tumor, not, but cancer, not a car accident. Very specific. And I know, well, it's such a shame. And um but during that period of time, I was writing, I wrote a script for Dustin Hoffman. I wrote a script, Bob Chardoff, who did, um, Chardoff Winkler did, you know, rock, all the Rocky movies. And I was in like the, as Billy Crystal says, he, he clawed his way to the middle, you know, Mr. Saturday. I was in, I wasn't the hottest, I was in the middle. I mean, I was making Hollywood money during that time, living in Beverly Hills, and nobody that I work with, and I told my agent, they never mentioned my sordid past of making um, genre movies. Because like Murray Schiskel, who wrote Tootsie, he said to me, why don't you show Dustin Squirm? I said, what for? I'm writing a script with Dustin Hoffman. I'm going to pitch it to him. And he says, well, maybe Dustin want you to direct. I said, I'm not going to show him, you know, like Squirm? Like, no, it's got nothing to do with what we're doing. I like I talk my way out of what could have been, you know, a huge. That's what I do. But anyway, uh, yeah. So during that period of time, I, you know, the never ending story three. I never even heard of the never ending story at all. And because of the Dustin Hoffman thing, I got a gig on a that time at that time, thirty five million dollar movie, which today's money would, you know. So you can imagine the paycheck. I was the only writer. Jack Black was in it and, you know, it had the creatures. Yeah, and, Jim Henson um, working on it. and Yeah, Jim Henson creatures. And, and like, so I had fun. But again, from the point of view of people that are into the, the genre exploded later on, uh, I never thought any of this would happen. I got a call from Mike Gingold in Beverly Hills 
saying, hi, I'm Mike Gingold from Fangoria Magazine. I went, what? Fangoria, it sounds like he just made that up. It's one of my friends. <laughs> what are you? And he said, uh, he said, um, we want to interview you, you know, for the magazine. And, and then I said, oh, there really is a Fangoria. And I went to one of these conventions and all of a sudden I have an entourage of fans. It was like the weirdest thing because it wasn't my existence at that time. It was like something I did when I was younger, you know? And so, uh, Oh my God. So during that time, is is it through those times and, you know, being kind of uh, reinstilled back in the genre community that the wheels started turning on Satan's Little Helper? Or was it an idea before that? Neither. You pinned it. Bingo. Neither. <laughs> what it was is that I turned the big five I figured I'm going to have a, um, you know, because my birthday is October 16th. Thank you. So um, I, said, <laughs> I said, I said, I preempted your thing. For the, so I said, um, I'm going to have a Halloween party. And all my friends are, you know, they have some money and they can go out and spend money on costumes. I said, you can't come without a costume. So everybody showed up. I had a big house, which I don't have now in Westchester. And they all... Everybody showed up in unbelievable costumes and was smoking weed and we're drinking with like complete party mode. And I figured, okay, you know, it's an hour late. Everybody's here. And suddenly a gorilla comes in. A full gorilla outfit. You know, you don't know who's in. And he's going around. He's acting like a gorilla, jumping on the furniture and acting like an asshole. Like, People with a gorilla outfit. And I figured, oh, I know who that is. It's the only guy I know would do that. And he starts dancing with me. And we're dancing around, dancing around. And I see, shit, the guy I think is in the gorilla outfit is standing over there with his wife. Oh. So who the fuck is this? <laughs> and went, the meter went from having fun to... This could be like in a newspaper tomorrow. Guy comes in, knows there's a Halloween party. Anybody could come in in costume and you're not, you know, I don't have a guy at the door checking IDs or anything. And so half my brain was trying to get my, she was in the kitchen, my wife with the caterer. And I try to get her attention because this could be like a 911 thing. And the other half of my brain, and I don't know which one, said there's a movie here because this is real like you say that could never happen this is fucking happening right now it turned out that it was a gorilla gram from you know remember charles rocket the actor? yeah so charlie in la who's a longtime friend of mine and he and his wife they didn't pay attention they sent they couldn't come from la couldn't make it so they sent me a gorilla gram now, if it was a Tuesday night, you know, without Halloween, I would, as soon as I'd see a gorilla come to my door, I'd go, ah, it's a gorilla grant, right? But on Halloween party, <laughs> he didn't do it intentionally, but if it wasn't for Charlie, I never would have gotten the idea, but, you know, it's just one of those things. Yeah, completely out of context. <laughs> it's terrifying. <laughs> 
That's wow. what happened. Wow. You know, because if you have somebody in the, an end of story, you know, they think it's the boyfriend. It's really the serial killer in this outfit. Same thing. Wow. Wow. One of the things that I love about the way this is written, too, are those like freaking jarring moments that you stick in the script like <laughs> some of them are really nuanced like Dougie's like madly in love with his sister right he, he talks about marrying his sister or you'll just linger the camera on the Satan uh, character sniffing all the family's underwear in the laundry that room was, <laughs> like you it's know crazy that was. you know we were in the laundry room in the house it's, you know a lot of stuff I do that winds up being the kind of highlight stuff is not in the script even though I wrote the script I do that all the time. I'm always kind of improvising on the moment when you're actually there to shoot. We were in somebody's laundry room. And, you know, the camera's here. And I just said to the guy, pick up, because it was the woman's, the woman in the house. We didn't prop that basket. Oh, that was just her stuff. (laughs) And and so everybody in the kitchen upstairs was... um, Wow. Uh, looking at the monitors, you know, waiting for us to do this, the actual scene. And and I said, I forgot the guy's name already because we had other people. But I said, pick up the underwear and snip the underwear. And I heard him laughing on the mask. And, and I heard them up. I said, roll the, you know, just roll the camera. That's all you have to do. And they saw, and I heard them laughing up in the kitchen. And then they all, the women said, you're not going to actually use that, are you? I went, bingo, you just gave it like 100 on the scale by asking me that question. Right. Totally. Right. <laughs> the thing with the cat? Yes, yes, my favorite scene. Not in the script. How do you, How is that not in oh, the script? Wow. How is that not? It was not in the script because what, what happened Did was- Did you just grab a real cat because, and destroy it? it was, um, well, we only had to kill one cat because we got nine <laughs> <laughs> but, but the thing is, yeah, and I'm going like, okay, what's the next? Joe Mangine, who is the um, the director of photography on uh, Squirm, and he was, I was like, kept, he had so much experience over me. He kept saying to me, "What's the next thing you're going to see on the screen?" Because when you're shooting low budget, you want to put, um, like John Waters says, you know, make a dollar holler. You really have to know what not to shoot. Not so much, you, you know, what the shoot is obvious, but don't shoot stuff that's not going to wind up in the movie. So what's the next image on the screen? I always uh, fought him on that. And then I realized that's brilliant if you can do it. And uh, I said, well, the next thing after this scene is Catherine Winnick seeing her boyfriend come home. And we, the audience, know it's not her boyfriend. It's um this maniac right well what have you seen him do thus far you saw him drag a guy you know you saw after the fact kills you never saw him kill anybody you saw him pull out a dead body down the stairs and put a flower on you saw him um uh propping up people on a thing but you never saw him. you knew he did it but you never saw him do it and he beats up the boyfriend you know like a Beats the shit out of him, but he doesn't even cut him up. So I'm thinking, what's the sickest? I want the the sick factor is not there yet. I just knew it intuitively. It's like he's violent and he can kill her, but I, I want to go for sick and sick is different, right? So then I thought, I just came, 
I said, get me a cat. A cat? I said, get me a black cat, and it has to have bells on the, uh, on the collar. Don't ask. We don't have the time. Just do it. And so what they did was, I should have said any fucking cat, they went out and got a trained $5,000 for a trained cat. I don't know what a trained cat does. You know, with a trainer, she came down with the whole, all I need is him take the little cat and pick him up. And then I said, go to the toy store and get a black cat stuffed animal. And then we'll take the um, stuffing out and put a, a prosthetic, you know, a blood thing. And then it's two shots. And so when we did it, because we had the monitor, because uh, shooting digital, they're all in there. And even though, again, pick up the cat and on action, throws a real cat, then the next angle, is the cat, the fake cat, hitting that wall and writing boo with it. It was all at the moment I thought of it. They all scream. They scream. They, it's not a real cat. I'm not. And if they scream, they're going to scream. Everybody sees the movie. And so when the movie premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival, that's not a horror audience. That's like a white wine snobby audience. I don't even want it to be there, but they wanted it so bad. And it was 400 people there. <gasps> they were all so shocked. And the first thing um, they asked me in the Q&A was about the cat. So that's when I got that line. You know, it's like, you really think I'm going to take a real cat? And do it? But it really didn't look realistic. So I, I did it. I only had to kill one cat. It took them, to me, it's an hour, like a split, but they go, it was silent, and they go, ah, I get it, you know. So you guys get it right away. Oh, my God. What did they think about, like, mowing down blind people and uh, pregnant lady and babies? (laughs) That audience. What's not the love? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Come on, you You really... Swear on the Bible that you never, when you stop at a light and you see a nun or you see a blood, you don't say how many points. Come on. I mean, be honest. Everybody on the planet, in every culture in the world, they don't actually carry it out. You go, if I hit those three kids, ricochet, or how many points do I get? I mean, I did that when I was a kid. So it's a natural. We love the way your brain works. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Leo, you had a question about Dougie, man. Hit him. Yeah, the, the young uh, the young lead character of Dougie, played by Alexander Brickle, uh, has this absolute innocence on the concept of Satan and murder and death. <laughs> Was his character inspired by someone you knew or perhaps your young thoughts on Satan and Halloween and costumes? Mm, no. Um, what it was is I wrote it for a younger kid at, at a certain age, a kid would buy every, all of that, you know, it would work for a younger kid. But I also knew when I brought up Steven Spielberg, if you have the Spielberg money, meaning, you know, when you work with a kid, a really young kid that can't remember lines and all, you're going to have um, three times in the kids, the main character, you have to have three times the time to work with them. And I knew from, because I made other movies, um, there's no way. There's, and this kid is really IQ-wise, he's a brilliant kid, and he was able to memorize all the lines, and then I could work with him to make it 
come from him. But you can't do that with a little kid that they're not going to remember. You're going to have to go sentence by sentence. And it's like working with an animal. They always say kids and animals. So I made that um, compromise. And I knew that if I had that movie to do, if you gave me enough money and I did that movie today, I might even consider now is with a non-PC doing with a Down syndrome kid, right? Because then it would be, okay, it would be very controversial and everything, but you'd buy everything, right? Because he had, I was trying to make a, a statement, you know, um, which I was, you know, maybe it's too heavy handed because, you know, video game, you say, well, video games, uh, what impact do they have on kids? But my biggest statement that's in the film that pissed off all of South America is about religion because I'm basically saying, and I believe, what's the difference between the kids saying, who can win in a fight, Batman or Spider-Man? You heard it all the time. When I was a kid, Superman against Batman. Well, when I said, well, who can win in a fight, Spider-Man or Jesus? What's the difference? From a kid's point of view, Jesus is not a superhero. I was trying and, and oh, Satan. Well, who? Well, Satan could beat up Spider Man. Well, Spider Man would put Satan in it. And well, Jesus would call God. And, you know, it's all, and it's all bullshit. There's no difference. The Bible is like they said it was, uh, I would believe it if it was uh, Marvel. Just put the Marvel stamp on it and it works. It totally works. It's a little slow. It's a little slow. You know, really. but, uh, so that's, that's what that's what I that's where I was coming from. But I was trying to because I had you know sometimes creative freedom. You need a. I didn't have anybody say, Jeff, you're trying to say too much in this story, and I really was. That's all I was thinking about because I know I have my filmmaking chops from making four movies before it. So that's what I was trying to get across. That was the thing. And evidently, all of South America wouldn't touch the movie because the Catholic, you know, this guy shows up as, you know, Jesus. And then the girls say Jesus is Satan, even though it's in context of the story. Forget it. You can't say Jesus is Satan and sell in South America. That's a lot of, a lot of yeah, money. Yeah, yeah. What about, what about the... <laughs> There, there, there is all those undertones too about like the absence of a father figure. It's in Alex's backstory. It's a bit in Dougie's backstory. We see his dads at work, like the, basically the whole movie. Was that what was going through your head in terms of that? Yeah, well, um, so it was not so much, you know, Dougie's father was just the work. He comes back with a briefcase. That's normal. But I wanted the, um, to humanize. Um, there's a scene in the. Um, costume store yeah where uh, alex wait who's who yeah alex is a character the character he um when he says he says that's not satan he goes well it is to me see because amanda Plummer, if you listen to the dialogue at the beginning of the movie she lays out the whole thing she says that there's evil and it's not necessarily a guy with a pitchfork and you know but there is evil everywhere in the world and the kid's disappointed because it's too ethereal. It's too, you know, you can't visualize it. And she says, unless he's wearing a costume, like his little helper. So that 
plants and the kid, ah, I look for somebody in a costume. But to Alex, his father is Satan. See, so again, I was like all these ideas on the 15th watch. You will get all this. I think I made. I think I made it through about fifteen watches at this point. I think. <laughs> no, I, you know, people watch this on Halloween like it's. Here's my wish: don't make another dime on the movie ever, but it becomes the Christmas story rotation, like you know, like twenty-four hour marathon. That to me would be on Halloween, like Halloween. TNT, 24-hour thing, I would just, you know, because there's people, when I go to conventions, they memorize, there's people that memorize Squirm. Not saw it a million times, but memorized every line of Squirm. And they stand in front of me. Guy did it just uh, last month at Cinema Wasteland. And I said, come on, you can't. Are you crazy? And I, he did it. I recorded him, and I gave him a scene that no way he, you know, it's not like you're going to be the worm face. And he nailed, I couldn't do it. And I wrote it. Everywhere. So I want that for this movie. That's oh, man. Well, it's it's <laughs> happening, man. It's happening with all these releases and everything. What do you think? Well, how does that make you feel that, that people are still, you know, some 20 years after Satan's Little Helper was completed, are gravitating toward it and discovering it? New, new fans every day. It, it's kind of like what happened to all the other movies of mine. I mean, Blue Sunshine is huge around the world. I go to, um, you know, I, there's film festivals everywhere. And I go um, to, I was in March, I was in Brussels. And the same, I was in Finland. I'm thinking, okay, there's no way anybody in Finland knows me. And I went to, you know, a, a film thing and I'm a guest of honor and it. The line went out up the stairs and down the block to get my autograph in Finland. I can't find Finland on the map. So <laughs> Finland found like, you. <laughs> I, yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's mind boggling to me. And it's, I'm not going to say humbling because all these douchebags use that word all the time, but it's the H word. So, <laughs> so, um, but it, seriously, it's like I never. You know, as I always say, better late than never. All the other stuff that I did is not famous. You know, like if you ask me what's the best thing I ever did, it's probably but seriously. The the thing that was on Showtime in my in other words, what I set out to do and what didn't get lost in the translation um, was, you know, it was great because we had the money. We had a lot of money. Uh, but who cares? Right. You don't. When you see a documentary on TV, do you look, well, who directed it? Is that the same guy? No. So they, you know, so at least I'm known for something. The Boo Crew will be right back. You sweat, but you don't dare move. You want to scream, but you can't. Terror grips every nerve in your body. And your heart is beating so fast, it feels like your eardrums are going to burst. You swallow hard, and you realize there is nothing you can do but wait and squirm. Now American International Pictures presents Squirm, the ultimate horror. 
Millions of writhing, seething creatures oozing out of the mire. Shocks into a frenzy by 100,000 volts of electricity. Driven by an uncontrollable urge to feed on human flesh. Squirm. Rated R under 17, not admitted without parents. Let's talk about the rest of the cast. <clears throat> uh, just getting Amanda Plummer involved in how, how she took to everything. I mean, she was incredible. We didn't. We didn't get. I when we were looking for that role, the producer Eisen Robbins said to me, uh, "Amanda Plummer really wants to do this." And I, I'm thinking because I already had Catherine Winnick. I'm trying to think in my head. Although I know she's a really good actress, but how could she be her mother? You know, like there's some in Hollywood, they never pay attention to that shit. Well, we'll dye her hair blonde, you know, and I was just it didn't work for me. But she was politicking to get the role. It wasn't me trying to get her. And uh, I don't remember. She didn't have to read for it because I, I knew who she was. It's just a question. Of, do I want to do that? And it turned out. I'm thinking, how does she even know who I am that she wants to do this? And she was living with Toby Hooper for like a long time. They were like a couple. I didn't know that. I didn't know that either, no. Yeah, but we we, obviously, I know who he was. He knew who I was. And he probably said, you got to work with Jeff Lieberman because there's no other. I never even asked her about it, but I'm sure because we did talk about Toby. you know, when I got to know her, and uh, that's probably what happened. But she was real; she wanted to do it. So then, and working with her, I mean, she's brilliant. But you have to know if it was my first film, forget it. She would have walked off. I mean, if I, when I was doing Squirm, she'd be so over my head the way she worked. I wouldn't have any idea, uh, and she would know it. You know, like they say, when you get on a horse, the horse knows if you can ride or sure. not. Sure, yes, yeah. She, she is that person and uh, with her experience. And because it was my fifth film, I got it. And I got to work at the top of my game to get the best performance out of her. And I think I did. I mean, it was great. I mean, we're friends today. We're like, you know, we had a great experience. So, And then Catherine Winnick. Yeah, Catherine she's huge Winnick. now. Huge after after Satan's yeah, Little huge. Helper. Well, to this. I had a magic touch when I did that movie. My history in the other four movies. When I turned down the finalists to the part to the roles, they all became huge stars. Turned down. When I cast them, none of them became big stars. Interesting. I had Squirm, I had Martin Sheen, I had Kim Bassinger, and I had Sylvester Stallone. That could have been this. All I had to do was say, cast them, scale, same money. Because and they, they, and they, they, were all, they were all not decided to be in it. I decided. You decided. What? <laughs> and, you know, it's easy to have 20-20 hindsight, but, uh, and, and this, I'm not saying, you know, Donnie Scardino did a great job, and Pat, they all were great. But they didn't, you know, Donnie became a very big 
TV director. Sure. But as far as actors, that's what I did. Blue Sunshine, oh, I had, I cast um, Zalman King. So then I got to get the doctor. Uh, so I'm casting with the doctor, and this guy, Jeff Goldblum, comes in. It's like <laughs> this you know, guy, Jeff Goldblum. And he's 77, <laughs> and he's like tall, and he's got a big honker. And, and Zalman, so the two of them are sitting at the table reading the scene, you know, because Zalman's already cast. And I said, can I, this is going to be on the screen, two like Jewish anteaters. I, I, you know, that's the image that I had in my head. And I can't do this to the audience. And, and then not, he was to play a surgeon. He, his father's a surgeon. It's like he knows this shit. And I went, eh. And so I got Robert Walden, who was great. I mean, it's not like I'm saying the people that I cast, Robert Walden, you know, he was in uh, Lou Grant and uh, after that. And uh, it's not, I'm not belittling the performances because I always got good, good actors, but I suck at smelling who's going to be a superstar. I don't, th- I don't know. Maybe I sh- agents know that or managers. But, and then uh, let's see, who else did I fuck up? Uh, oh, <laughs> Here's a good one. Okay. Remote control. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, remote control. Okay, Kevin Dillon. He had done Platoon. I saw him Platoon. I was I said, this is a guy, he's real crude kind of, you know, guy. And uh um and he was Matt Dillon's brother. Back then it was like Jennifer Tilly was Meg Tilly's sister, right? So there's a name on the box. That's what they used to call that kind of casting. You're not gonna get Meg Tilly and you're not gonna get see um so uh matt dillon so you get his brother and his sister so uh matt um kevin who's still in he had a crew cut he was still in the oliver stone mentality of uh platoon he goes you gotta meet my buddy i'm not gonna tip it off you gotta meet my buddy from platoon you know to play the other guy in the video store i said kevin this is not platoon history you know i'm casting the thing Come on, you're just going to meet him, you know? I told him, you, you know, that you would say, okay. You know, I, okay, okay. So I told the kids, I got to meet his brother, his friend. So his friend comes in, his, and he had a crew cut too, because it was right after that thing. And he was boring as shit. Boring. Then they, and we still have video cassettes. We were recording the, the casting session. And I have a pile of cassettes in my place in BH and I'm going through all the casting and my teenage daughter walks by behind me and she says oh my god who's that I said it's Kevin's friend and she goes oh my god he's gorgeous I said he is like really and uh Johnny Depp (laughs) all I had to do was say okay you cast (laughs) I, I'm brilliant at <laughs> spotting, like, not casting people that are going to be super. And you know what these movies would be worth if I ever, if I actually ca- cast the people that I could have had just by saying yes. Yeah. But I had, so when Catherine came in, I said to her, you know, because she's like a kind of a finalist. And I said, I got to tell you something. 
if I cast you, you're either never going to work again or you know, you're going to go right into oblivion, you know, and she left. She goes, no, you, you know, you're superstar. I said, no, look at my track record. I told him my track record. It's like impeccable. I suck at this. It's superstar. You could be great in the movie, but, you, you know, you can wind up being a waitress. And so when I saw I'm driving down Sunset Boulevard and I see her on a giant billboard um, for Vikings. And I, I lost, like the curse is gone. Yeah. I lost my yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Or the yeah. gift, man. Either way, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. But I mean, that's, is unbelievable how every one of those movies could have had, I mean, Stallone, he was a, working as a waiter. He just wanted to read. And I said, and I, I already knew I saw the Lords of Flappers, so I already knew who he was, and I already liked him. But I said, that guy down in the South, in a worm farm? I mean, if you think about it, I was right. It, you know, from casting, he would have sucked, but he still survived. And uh, Kim Bassinger, here's my brilliant thing. She comes in, she's 21 years old, Ford Model Agency. If you think that she was beautiful in the movies, when she came out of the Ford Model Agency to act, we couldn't, we were sitting there, me and the two producers, we, we didn't talk, couldn't talk. That's how gorgeous she was. And I said, well, um, well, I talked. I said, um, we're shooting in Georgia. Oh, I'm from Georgia. And she had a little, really? Oh. And, uh, you know, there is, you know, I'm kind of like, there's nudity, you know, shower scene. She goes, I have no problem with my body. It's like, whoa. And, uh, and so when, they, when she left, they said, well, what do you think? And I said, uh, who's going to believe that she lives next door in, to a worm farm? It's not believable. It's like little Abner, right? That's logical. But these were Broadway produced Edgar Lansbury and Joe Baru. They had that's Angela's brother. They're classy. The auteur, you know, they actually listened to me on my first movie instead of saying Sam Arcourt. If he was there, he would have grabbed me, thrown me up against the wall, and say, "What's the name of this fucking movie? Uh, uh, squirm? What's it about? Uh, worms electrify? Who's going to see this picture?" Uh, horny teenage guys, you know? That's what they want to see in the shower. I learned the hard way. So who auditioned for Satan's Little Helper? Like Brad Pitt? George Clooney? Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. That's my, uh, yeah. (laughs) Well, talking about about Satan himself, so is it one actor under that outfit? Or or is there a couple of different people under that? No, like five. Really? When I realized um, we discussed, I didn't know. Um, I likened it to like George Romero, who I really didn't know. I met him a couple of times, but how do you tell they weren't even called zombies, not a little dead? Like you came out of the dead. How do you like? How do you direct somebody? And if you want, I mean, I watched Nine Eleven Dead. I think it's the stupidest thing. They, they, you know, they their arms. You go, flail your arms. You know, <laughs> like, how are you supposed to act when you were dead and now you're not dead or whatever it is? And they're all going, yeah, yeah, yeah. and to me, it was just stupid. But, so, you know, 
So I couldn't. Um, so how does it, this guy, this weird, twisted guy, um, the way I wrote it, but how is he going to behave when he can't talk? And so we literally discovered the character right down the sidewalk the first time I shot him with a little kid, where, you know, him going, uh, you know, we came up with that stuff. Yeah, putting the thumbs up and kind of exaggerated. Yeah, all that kind of stuff and all that reaction, we kind of formed the personality as we did it. And then we knew what he's going to do. And once he got it, um, the situation, I didn't really have to tell him what to do because he knew what this guy would do. But what with a stunt person, you put him in the costume, you don't know you look at a stunt person, but they can know, you know, then I could tell them this is what the guy would do because I knew who the, who the guy was. So it got to a point where we were shooting on Long Island in the fall. We shot the whole movie, the main movie in uh, July. We made it look like the fall and Halloween. And then we shot the, the, um, the graveyard, a lot of scenes in the fall, and he wasn't available, the guy that you saw. So I said, well, I told my AD who was there, Neil Daly, he was there all the time, smart guy. I said, guess what? You're it. So that was, you know, when the woman, the old woman with the, the walker. Yeah, yeah, with the candy falling all over the place. Yeah. And, yeah, so I was just standing behind the camera, and Neil was in the outfit, and I said, look at your watch, you know, you're sleeping, you know, because it takes a long time. That was my AD. Oh, that's I, I, amazing. Yeah, so it was probably five different um, uh, people that played, but the main, car- the main guy was uh, that guy whose name I don't remember did you the mask and everything was that all bespoke was that made just for the movie or did you uh, did you pick it out from somewhere when i'm writing the script i said i have to have like a an image of what this character that i'm creating is going to look like and so i went on the internet and i just looked up masks and i um, thousands of masks and then i come across it i go that's the guy so I printed out a picture of it and I taped it to my wall next to my computer. So while I was typing, I would look up at that face and know what to, what to write. But I didn't have the mask. So then when the movie came together, I told the production people, I got to have a mask. And they came up with, you know, how easy it is. No devil mask. No, 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 no. I got to have that mask, that one mask. And they, um, and the guy said, "Oh, I'm sorry, I broke. They broke the mold. You know, it's like that expression. Oh, it's and, like uh, it was like an old mask that they didn't make anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I said, don't tell the, um, you know, don't make it like we need a mask to be the centerpiece of a movie called Satan's Little Heaven. This is Satan. Tell them we need a mask for a movie. Right, exactly. <laughs> Smart. Three hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah. yeah wow." Well. I was one of the producers. So they did. And it was 320 bucks. And we got a backup one that looked shitty for the real, you know, we didn't want to ruin it. You know, so we had a backup one for violent stuff where you're not going to get a good look at it. And I still have the mask. Oh, Um, wow. So you made, there's two masks total used in the whole production of the film. Yeah. Well, the one main mask, it's thick. It's like, uh, keeps on ticking. I have it 
I have it in a bag right now because my daughter laid claim. I have two daughters, and one of them was on the set of Squirm when she was three. Wow. And somebody offered me years ago $10,000 for the clapper, you know, the Yeah, slate. yeah. And uh, she said, no, that's mine, my daughter. And uh, she said, I was on, you know, means a lot to me. So, okay. And because uh, I'd give it a 10 grand anyway, you know, it's like she's my daughter. So she has it in one of those shadow boxes. Oh, that's on that's beautiful. Yeah. That's beautiful. And then, and then so my younger daughter, Emily, she um, wants the mask, which they're knocking off this mask. I mean, some I did a screening, some uh, the Satan man and the little kid walking towards me. I thought this is like a the longest delayed acid <laughs> kickback or whatever you call it, flashback ever because they're walk they're there. And what happened was this husband and wife loved the movie so much they went and made the costumes, bought the mask on the internet with they're selling them like crazy, claiming that from the movie that not they're not. But I'm not going to, you know, to me, it's advertising. Sure, know? of course. And, uh, you have, and the woman was in the kid's mask. They came up to me. It was like, oh, shit. And they drove up from like Philadelphia or something. And so, um, yeah, I, I hope it's a big phenomenon. That is so cool. What about his hands? Did you have to have those made or were they just, again, store-bought pieces? Yeah, store-bought. There was nothing because, uh, as a matter of fact, when she said, where did you get that coat, the old lady? She said, did you steal it from a Hasid? Guess what? The, um, we had, I said, the guy, you got to go down to like uh, East New York or someplace where this Hasidic guy in Brooklyn, where they actually sell this shit, right? And yeah, and I just said, don't tell them what you're using it for. Because, you know, you know, they sell it. Very, you know, the people that, that, I said, here's the story. You say your uncle is in from Israel. I made up some whole bullshit story because they wouldn't sell it if they said, oh, we're doing a movie called Satan's Little Helper. <laughs> and, and Satan guys can wear the fucking, you know, right. that's not a saying. The worst thing ever. Helper. And they came back and I said, I need like three of them because they could rip it. You know, he's wearing it through the whole movie. So you need backups. So that was a cross my finger thing. Yeah. Oh my God. And what about the other man? Like the G- does that Jesus mask actually? Did they make a mask like that? And Jesus, I have that too. No, that was created. I don't know Anthony Pepe, um, who was great. Um, who also I hired for the John Waters uh, thing, and Anthony um, did. It was like clear. You could see through the plastic, and it only became real when you put it on. You know what I mean? And um, so what happened was we're shooting this whole movie and he's Satan, 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 Satan. We get to in the shoot. It just so happens later in the shoot. Now we're going to see the Jesus character in the house. And I hadn't seen it. And I go up to makeup and I see them putting it on. I'm going, is this going to work? I go downstairs. I didn't know the wig and the thorns. And he comes down the stairs. And my AD, same guy, Neil Daly, he turned white. And a couple of other people on the set, the girls, like, there was silence. What's going on here? And then Neil said, I got to go out and get air. Like, he's getting dizzy. And 
And I looked at it and I said, this looks great. What happened was, if you're a Catholic, like Neil said to me, I have no, Jesus, I mean, uh, Satan, the whole thing, nothing, nothing. But he didn't expect that to happen. Like Jesus, he, it was so scary to him. And my, my wife went to Catholic school all the way through till high school. And she doesn't give a shit, but certain people do. Um, she didn't react that way, but she wasn't there. But um, um, people reacted more frightened by the Jesus image than Satan. And I'm like, whoa, I'm, this is so either above my pay grade or way below my, you know. Because <laughs> yeah. neither, they're both fictional, they're both Batman and, you know, and Superman to me, anyway, superheroes. And uh, uh, so it was, uh, it was a real um, there, awakening. There's something about that expressionless humanoid face that yeah. is, and, and the fact that it's Jesus' face is terrifying. It, it really is. Yeah. It's a really did a great job. I mean, it was the same guy. It was the same uh yeah. Wow. And then we had some yeah. And then the video game element. Did you is it was it an actual playable video game or is it just some animation no, somebody made? No, uh, what happened was, you know, we had no money. The the um the video game was they call flat it was done at the very last minute, like an afterthought. It was either that what you see in the movie or nothing. And normally um making a movie I would say, Okay, fuck it. We'll wait till post-production, get more money, whatever it is, and do it right. But I knew th- that I don't shoot. The- I want to shoot the kid. It's got to be in people's hands to see somebody playing it, not this way where you see they're playing something and then a close-up. And the thing is, that would just be bullshit. And that's the reason why it was very crude. Um and it didn't really matter that much. You get the idea. Yeah. But it wasn't up to, you know, the video snuff that it should have been if I had to, it did it in post, you know? And they, did your daughter do the music for that? Yeah, oh, yeah. She didn't do the music. She did the music for the video game. Yeah. She went to NYU um, graduate school for music and film. Oh, and shit. Stuff. And, uh, yeah. And so she, you know, I didn't say the composer. Uh, uh, of the movie, you have to use my daughter, but like, just I'm going to give her a crack at it, and you don't have to use it. You can come up with a better thing, and you go, No, this is great. So, oh, that's fantastic. And then, what about the doorbell, the Wooly family doorbell? Was that a composition, or was that actually the, the doorbell that, that belonged to the house or the set or whatever? No, that, no, we did that. I, I wanted that to be like a church bell. Yeah. I'm telling you, I, I put all these ideas all in there. Because that's not a normal no, ding dong. It is you know, not. I wanted that to be kind of church bell. And I, we just got back from Italy and we were in uh, Lake Como and uh, uh, Malagio. It's uh, across from Bellagio across the lake. And these fucking church bells all day long driving me crazy, you know, try to keep the, and it sounded very much like that, you know, and uh, that's what I wanted, like, to sound like church bells. That's annoying. Looking at the uh, filming locations in Sulphur County, uh, Long Island, New York, and t- tell us about shooting in that elaborate mansion where the Halloween party takes place. Actually, it's from where I'm sitting here on Zoom, in Zoom land, it's probably three miles from here. Are you it's kidding me? Yonkers. 
It's wow. in Yonkers, New York, on the river, and it's the most, you know, it's one of these things where if you don't look at all the little houses around it that were built way later, this is like a castle. You don't see the Hudson River in, in the movie, but it's the most sensational place. I don't know the history's over 100 years, and there was a guy who was an architect who lived there, and little by little, he was restoring the whole place. A lot of movies were shot there. I know that Julia Roberts, big, there was a lot of big Hollywood movies that were shot in, in that uh, castle, and it's just, you don't expect it to be where it is. And the, um, So through movie magic, in the beginning of the movie, you see the car driving in Maine. That's Maine. Interesting. Wow. wow. So, and the person driving that car is me. Oh, wow. <laughs> you don't see it, but we, we went second unit, just me and the DP and another guy. We went up to Maine in the fall. We shot the main movie, the body the of the movie in July, went up there. So you see the ferry in the distance and you see the water so you can sell to the audience that it's an island when in fact, the main part of the movie you're watching is in Westchester, White Plains, no water, <laughs> no oh. island. There's no such thing as Bell Island. Yeah, Bell Island, I was going to ask, yeah. Yeah, it's just like, uh, uh, like um, what is it, uh, Fly Creek. People say, I've actually seen people, and they vote. That's what I always think. These people vote every four years. <laughs> <laughs> squirm can't be a true story because the beginning it says you know based it's true story or this happened. can't be because there's no such thing as fly creek georgia the they, nailed you. <laughs> they nailed you <laughs> right. not that there was a storm with like millions of worms or, no it's because there's no therefore this got to be bullshit right <laughs> now, my only right. was like Oh, this person. Oh. <laughs> well, one of the features on the Blu-ray that I can't wait to get because I, I haven't gotten the, the brand new Blu-ray version yet. I just got the DVD in the screen boxes. You get a studio, uh, a location tour. Do you give the location tour on the Blu-ray? Yeah, I, I went around to all the locations, but um, I said I want to do like the standard. Um, I this is where we shot the castle. This is where. So what I did was I took the mask. I'm putting on my hand like a puppet. And I had, I took him to revisit so he could like, I said, remember this place? And he would, you know, <laughs> so I had an ongoing conversation. And I, in fact, there's one point where we went in one place. I said, you remember this place? And I said, bullshit, you weren't in, you weren't in the movie yet at the beginning. And he goes, uh, so people are responding um, to that, you know, great. We'll get them to watch an extra. Right, know? right. And then as far as like the un the uncut version, what how much stuff is was left off the previous version? You know, the uncut the big headline, I don't know why they you know the uncut the fact is that it was never out in Blu-ray. And and it looks it looks great, you know, and that's that's really the point. Whether you know somebody put it out in Blu-ray in some small way that didn't really have any quality at all. So what Don made from Synapse is saying, let's differentiate it from that and make it clear. But there's no like missing footage. You usually you think about missing footage and 
I'm not aware of anything that was, oh, but yeah, they did. Take it back. I'm going to take that all back. Yeah. <laughs> what happened was they cut it for television, a Blu-ray. Oh. So they did take out, right? So this is the opposite of what I just said. I just remembered that. So yeah, if you did see it in Blu-ray, you saw a, a TV cut thing. So yeah, I mean, it's the original movie that was DVD only in, in high def Blu-ray. And it looks great. Looks really good. Color correction, everything. Beautiful. So at this point, what has the life of Jeff Lieberman been like since Satan's Little Helper? Obviously, been, you did that John Waters show recently. Anything else oh, that's been cooking? Here's, here's where the plug all comes in. I know out there in the radio land, they're not going to see this. Oh, yeah. Day of the Living Me. Adventures yes. of a Cult Filmmaker from the Golden Age. A book. A book. Incredible. Nice. Yeah. And uh, as a matter of fact, somebody right now who's pretty well known is doing the audio book. He tells me what chapter he's on. And, and the, so the audio book is going to come out because people, they, that's what they do. I do it. You listen in your car like the podcast, you know. And so he's doing, doing the book and people are really digging the book. And it goes, what people are getting out of the book a lot is um, independent filmmaking, that kind of stuff. And also, if you can see on the cover, Rick Tremble's great. He did the uh, artwork, but you can see um, George Burns, John Lennon, Tippi Hedren, and John Waters, all in the book. And it's all people I worked with. It wasn't, it's not like I met a celebrity, except for George. I double dated with George Burns, not with him. I mean, he had a girlfriend that was 32 at the time. He was 80. He did um, um, Oh God at that time. And so I knew I did the the ad campaign for Tommy. Did you know that out there? Remember Tommy? Yeah, the yeah, movie? yeah. The Tommy, the movie, your senses will never be the same with the cork, the cork in the mouth. And, you know, that was me. I no way. Designed it. I wrote the whole thing. And so they wanted me to sing people, Rob Stigwood, to do another thing. I didn't want to do advertising. The trade-off was that I get to blind date that this woman who was dating George Burns, that, it, that she would get a, a girl to be a beard, you know, like a fake girlfriend of mine. So all he knew was that another co- couple were coming and we spent, I mean, it was, people say it's the best part of the book, but it was one of the greatest, um, the greatest... <laughs> <laughs> no, it really was. that is fascinating <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was because it's one thing to meet celebrities and you know you bullshit and they don't they don't really you know everybody's the same you know right so you you know in this movie and that movie it's another thing to like be off the air and do a double date and drink and get drunk oh and yeah get, you know, that's I mean, the real good stuff man i mean i have wait wait too bad we're not doing a zoom because I have visual aids right here. It says to Jeff, don't smoke it. George Burns. This is 
don't know if you can see that. It's, it's a, a cigar. A cigar, yeah. El Producto. Yeah. yeah, El Producto uh, Queen. Probably cost him 15 cents. And uh, he gave me this because I said, hey, George, you know, in the Sunshine Boys, you're reading Variety, the guy dies, but when I, you're going to outlive me for sure. But if you don't, when I, because um, I said I want, he offered me like a Dunhill Monte Cruz, like good cigar. And I said, I can afford to buy my own fucking cigars. I want one of yours. And he goes, one of mine? You know, it's like a clothesline. You know? And he said, I've been smoking them since Vaudeville because they don't go out. It's like taking a rope and setting it on fire. You didn't want to go out and doing the thing. So he always, he always smoked them. So I said, I want one of yours. And then I said, when I, if I hear, God forbid you die before I do, that's when I'm going to smoke this. And he goes like this, and his butler came over, and he took the cigar out of my pocket, and he goes like this. And the guy knew he wanted a piece of paper, and he wrote a note wrapped the cigar in the note and put it back in here and put it back in my pocket. So I didn't read it. I was with the beard girl. We go out in the car. She goes, what do you write? What do you write? And I looked at it under the light and said to Jeff, don't smoke it, George Burns. And I, right then I'm thinking, because if I smoke it, that means he's dead. Okay? 20 years later, he dies. And <laughs> I hear on the radio, all my friends that knew this because they saw the cigar in my office. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And I, go, I don't, you know, I'm not going to smoke it, even though I said, yeah, but I did say I'm going to do it. I don't know. And my brother, my brother, who is the big brother and things like this, and he knows, he knew I didn't want to He said, no, George knew he's going to live way longer to 100. He said he was trying to protect you because if you smoke it, you'll die. Ah. <laughs> I'm going to go with that. I'm going with That's, that. Yeah, story. I love That's that. Right. I love that. I love this. But I mean, those kind of things, Sidney Poitier story and uh, Rod Serling. You know, I did a, a series with Rod Serling. No shit. The guy did Squirm. He didn't do Rod Serling. Nobody. Yeah, I did a six part thing uh, called The Art of Film with Janice Films, and Rod Serling was the narrator for all of them. And, and I directed Rod Serling, in fact, out there in uh, Radio Land or TV Land or Zoom Land, you can go on YouTube and put in Rod Serling, Jeff Lieberman, one of the six. Somehow, I found the tape, and I, uh, I digitized it and uploaded it onto, uh, onto uh, YouTube. And you see... You, what's great about it, it's not just the episode. It's everything, you know, like him clearing his throat. Oh, wow. Like all the outtakes oh, behind the scenes stuff. Often, yeah, saying, oh, fuck wow. that truck, do it again. He even says, fuck you, Jeff, which is nice. <laughs> and, uh, and <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's really good. He does it over and over. And it's, it, you're there in the room with Ron and his, uh, his daughter, Ann Serling. I, um, She's on Facebook, and I told her about it. I sent it to her, and she listened to it. She was, like, over the moon about it. But she did say, she said, um, I could tell you my father really liked you, Aww. which was, we, we hung out. I mean, we literally drank 
It's Rod Serling. One quick, but this is in the book. So I got, I get Rod Serling, right? But I, first he's going, well, how's this thing going to be used? And, um, and he was the top um, credible Mazda performs. You know, he'd do a commercial and get like unbelievable money because everybody believes when he says something. Of course. It's God. Yeah, it's the word of God. <laughs> yeah, and that's why I wanted him. And, uh, and uh, he was very, and then finally, he, I answered all the questions the right way. How's it going to be used? And all. Next time, he made up his mind he's going to do this. This is Rod Serling's way of saying I'm in. They go, it's Rod Serling on three. You know, remember the phones with the buttons on it? Pick up. They go, hello? And he goes, a Polak, a zebra, and a rabbi walk into the bar. And he starts telling me, and I went, what? This is Rod fucking Serling telling me a Polish joke. I start laughing. He thinks I love Polish jokes. Because why am I laughing? I'm laughing because fucking Rod Serling telling me. <laughs> yeah. So every time I'd see him, he goes, two Polaks. <laughs> he just like told me and he thought I, I needed another Polish joke when all I wanted to, I, I didn't want any Polish jokes, but I, I, it was just the funniest thing in the world for him to be telling me a Polish joke and the way it sounded because he, everything he did sounded like Rod Serling because he's Rod Serling. And, and then so he says, uh, I, I had to go up to Ithaca for the pilot because that's where he was teaching at Ithaca College. He wanted to use some of the students. And um, so I'm going to fly up there. So now we're like frenzy Wednesday, and I have a certain sense of humor. I said to him, hold it, hold it, hold it, because he said, I'll meet you out in front of the school at a certain time. I said, how will I know you? How will I recognize you? You know, I'm, we're only talking on the phone. And he, he goes, excellent point. He says, I'll wear, he goes, I'll wear a red carnation in my left lapel. <laughs> go up there. And, I, and he's like this tall. I mean, he's really short. But I go, oh, there he is. And so I go over. And instead of going, hey, Rod, I go over looking all over for him because I don't know what he looks like. Right. That's the bit. And then I see the flower. He had it. A red carnation. And I zeroed in get really close i go you must be rod serling that's the kind of relationship i mean we used to go through a revolving door and i'd say after you and he go no after you i go no after you and he go why certainly and he would go in and i would cut in front of him three <laughs> stooges marx brothers everything we did. People, oh his, his daughter knew him obviously better than i did but people nobody knew this guy he was not, he was a brilliant guy. Like, I'm not saying anything negative about what he did. He's a genius, but he's a human being and he's funny as hell. And, and we, we would just do shtick. That's how I got along with George Burns because I was feeding him straight lines. So it's all in the book. And, and if the book is half as interesting as any of these stories, man, it's going to be a fascinating yeah, read too. I, was, yeah. I, was, yeah. I mean, John Lennon, it's the whole great thing with John Lennon and uh, Tippy Hedren and uh, a lot of good shit that you wouldn't know from the 
horror exactly stuff. exactly so anyone who wants to know what jeff lieberman's up to why isn't he making any movies since blah 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 yeah. read the book yeah. read the fucking book oh, yes yeah. living me yeah i'd like to say but it's not <laughs> <laughs> yeah jeff man thank you so much for this time um yes everybody listening get your hands on the book wait for the audiobook go to jeff's website and if you haven't been indoctrinated into the world of satan's little helper you know what to do Screenbox and the brand new blu-ray from synapse with the, all the behind the scenes features yeah, yeah. commentary everything jeff lieberman director.com there you in go new jersey that's Jeff Lieberman, director. Remember, they used to do that in Wisconsin. That's Jeff Lieberman, director. dot com. Now, I want you guys. You can get the um, the Kindle, but then oh, see cool. if you buy. It, but his thing, if you buy it, I tell people I don't care. But if you buy it on Amazon, I can't sign it. But if oh. you buy it on my website, I can sign it because oh. I send it out. That's the and way most to, people want. Oh, that's yeah, cool. that's yeah, that's the way to do it. That's the way to do it. Yeah. All right. People, well, you know. I'm not a young man. As soon as I boom, you read eBay, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Look at it as an investment. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) It's going to pay for your kid's college fund one day. Jeff, man, thank you so much. This is amazing. I would say this is one of my top 30 uh, podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) And that was the Boot Crew Podcast, episode 364. Special thanks to our guest, Jeff Lieberman, and special thanks to you. You can stream Satan's Little Helper exclusively on Screenbox now. Production tracks for this one provided by Power Man 5000. Until next time, this is Trevin on behalf of myself, Lauren and Leo. It's the Boot Crew saying, sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boot Crew. Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Tales from the Boo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye. A bloody disgusting podcast network, home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full-cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy for disturbing and terrifying creepypastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.